dig this. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We're back with some mid-table madness. My name is Jim, and I'm here with Cameron. Um, and this week, we're going to be actually trying something new. Um, came up with this idea, and it might be a little bit half-cooked. We'll find out. But um, basically, the concept, I call it blind counter. Um, and so uh, Cameron and I are each, basically, our homework was to come up with an army list. And um, neither of us is aware of the other person's list. Um, you know, maybe we have an idea of what the other one might be playing, but... Other than that, you know, it's just kind of blind. Um, and we've chosen a couple of missions from both ITC format and the rulebook. And what we're going to do is we're going to sort of talk through how we would play that game, um, you know, with the list that we brought against the list that we just saw, you know, kind of mimicking a tournament situation. And sort of it's like a, uh, a thought exercise, kind of going through the thought process of going up to the table and, and picking your missions and kind of developing your strategy before the game starts, um, and then even kind of talking through where you'd expect the turns to go um, after that. And I think it's kind of a valuable thing because um, I know, Cameron, you and I were both talking about this, is sometimes it's tough to get practice, and sometimes you can sort of practice in your own head. Um, or like if you're talking to somebody you can't get a game with, but you can at least sort of talk these things through um, and kind of imagine the likely scenarios. So, Right, yeah. Be, no, the, yeah. The, I guess the, the other cool thing about it too is that uh, in past episodes, we've always talked about, oh, well, I know the game's going to go this way, or whenever we start pre-game, this is going to happen. And we never really have had a chance to really elaborate on what we mean or really show you how this actually works. So I feel that this way is a good way to get like kind of inside our, our own heads and basically walk you through some of the things. And may, hopefully it'll elucidate some ideas that we talked about maybe in previous in previous or future podcasts, too. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, um, you know, if, if you're somebody who hears, you know, say someone like Nick, who's like, oh, this just does this every time. Um, he knows from experience that that's what's going to happen, but you may not. I know I certainly don't every time he says something like that. So uh, it can be nice to sort of see the thought process that goes on um, outside of the shorthand of what we say in the regular podcast. So um, before we get into that, I think I'd like to get into some recently played games and just sort of talk about our experiences over the last couple of weeks. Um, I know it's been a little bit quiet lately, but still managed to get a couple of games in here and there. So Cameron, why don't you start off and kind of talk about some of your stuff? Sure thing. So I guess most recent games that I've had, I've been prepping for a 15, uh, 1650 Highlander tournament up uh, this weekend, actually tomorrow, which will be probably uh, this past weekend by the time this episode comes out. In either case, um, as I am going for best Harlequins in the ITC, I am playing Harlequins Primary. So it's been a interesting change because having a Highlander format means that the threats and things that I'm used to are going to be very, very skewed. Aside from having a limit of 0 to 1 to everything except for troops, we're also limiting no super heavies, Lords of War. So immediately, I don't have to worry about Wraith Knights or Imperial Knights. Uh, the past few games have been really interesting because I've taken a Harlequin Mask with only one transport and pretty much every single unit in the Codex, small as it is, as well as a uh, Farseer on a jet bike, single unit of scatter bikes, some War Walkers, and a Crimson Hunter. 
The other fun thing is that since we are actually using Death in Disguise, the Hunter comes into play giving me that plus one, minus one to my reserves, and minus one to my opponent's reserves, which is always nice. Oh yeah, Death in Disguise does a lot if you uh, you have some good flyers in your list. Exactly, and the cool thing about it too is that I took the Exarch upgrade. So the while the Crimson Hunter is a fighter, meaning that it's going to have Skyfire, it's going to have minus one BS against ground targets, which is normally a big jump going from you know BS4 to BS3, but the Exarch mm-hmm. is BS5, so I'm still hitting ground targets on threes, and I just get the twos against air targets, which is pretty nice for a 20-point upgrade. Oh, big time, yeah. yeah. So I guess my most recent game would be against a um, Tau Highlander list, which had a mixture of everything. Uh, one giant unit of suits with missiles and a buff commander, um, one of each pretty much troop choice. So the strike team, breacher team, and I think a human unit recruit. Um, Devilfish, Hammerhead, uh, a Forge World drone sentry turret, which okay. is basically a twin link marker light, and also gave units within two inches reroll ones to hit. Uh, some broadsides, and I think that's it. Uh, they. We played a straight book mission, as my new club tends to favor less complicated missions, which is actually a nice change of pace. Sure. And um, I was able to seize on him, because I got the one of the better Harlequin traits, which was a plus four to my seize, so I seized on a two-up. The game really came down to how long can I survive his firepower, and what tricks can I use to mitigate is firepower, and can I get to it, to him in combat? Sure, because I think that Tau actually played Highlander really well, because there are a codex that really doesn't have um, too many bad choices. And so you can really just kind of mix it up and, and have fun with it, because you, there's just so much good stuff to work with. You know? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The the fun thing with it, too, is that it feels almost like a harken back to, like, 6th edition, when you mm-hmm. would see, like, either just a small ally of Tau, or when you saw a whole plethora of different units in town. I know <clears throat> some of the top tables in Nova, you'd had things like a couple of Riptides and Hammerheads, whereas other lists had Double Skyray and Sniper Drones and no sure. broadsides. So it was fun to see like a multitude of different units. Mm-hmm. And um, in the end, I think I was able to finally kill off his Devilfish and Hammerhead at the last game turn to pull off a win. But I only had my Solitaire my single warlord who was a troop master with one wound left um a single warwalker and i think a single uh death jester and those are my only four units left and all he had left was his turret and then i killed his hammerhead and devilfish and so it was a very very close game throughout through and through sounds like yeah so um you you did come away with the win in that one i did um nice pulled off the win uh it was very tough, and it, it it also makes me appreciate having your more double missions or asymmetrical missions like ITC or Nova, where you're going against not just endgame objectives or not just kill points, but also have some sort of maelstrom or some other way of scoring throughout the game. Yeah, I really do think the mix of endgame and progressive is a really nice change, and I think that you know it makes those formats more fun, at least personally, I think so. Agreed. So that was pretty much my recent game. And then I got a three-round tournament tomorrow um, with some convincing from my uh, future wife here who suggested <laughs> that I go for both painting score as well as winning the overall tournament. I've actually cut the Warwalkers, and I'm just taking a Warp Hunter because that thing is 
really good. It's also fully painted and converted to fit in with my Harlequin theme. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what you go for. Um, it's also, Warp Hunters are just so powerful. Yeah, I, I kind of felt bad taking it, but then I realized also we're playing Highlander, and my majority of my points are Harlequins, so I kind of need a little bit of help. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, cool. You, so, yeah, uh, recently for me, um, I've actually played two games in the last two days. Um, yesterday, I got a chance to play against one of my coworkers who I talk Warhammer with a lot, but, um, you know, we don't, he doesn't really ever get to play all that much. He's been pretty busy lately. Um, so he actually took out his beautifully painted White Scars army. Um, and he was trying out the Stormlands Demi Company formation with like the, um, what do I call it, Scarblade Strike Force. So um, he's got a lot of like special abilities that give him a lot more speed. He can, um, his tactical squads can like pop back into rhinos and after they shoot, which is pretty neat. Um, it's a lot of cool little tricks. And uh, I just brought sort of a, basic Necron to carry on up against that. So I had like a Canoptech Harvest and um, a uh, Destroyer Cult and some stuff like that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately it just sort of goes to show you how like playing the game and, and having experience with it is valuable. Um, I, you know, his early shots kind of bounced off me because I'm Necrons. Um, and he sort of got a little too aggressive, a little too fast. Um, and so my army was just sort of able to, you know, as Necrons do, stand with their middle fingers in the wind <laughs> you know, and uh, just kind of let the shots rain off me and um, countercharge and kind of mop things up. Um, he did also concede the game after about turn three, even though it was very far from over. I think that, um, you know, I was trying to explain to him, I said, you are far from out of it. And, you know, the irony of that is that I'm a player who, you know, I do that sometimes. I have not done it in a long time, and I think I've been a lot better about it. But um, that used to be something I used to get frustrated and say, like, okay, well, if this game is a foregone conclusion, I'm not going to waste my time. Um, but it's something we've talked about on this podcast a lot, which is figure out those scenarios and think through the next couple of turns. And if you really can't win, then sure, you can, you know, resign. But there's usually some way, even if you're playing for, like, a turn five or a turn six, you should try to go for it. Just see if you can, you know, just for as, like, a tactical exercise you'll get better at the game by doing it um but i don't know if i was going to get through to him right then and there um but perhaps the more interesting game was the night before uh, i got a chance to play against nick for the first time in a while uh, he was trying about a msu necron list um and i brought my blood angels and i got to play the uh golden host alongside the chapter ancients formation so i was rocking five dreadnoughts i had a um furioso librarian in a Lucius pod had a couple of regular Furiosos and pods and then um, a couple of frag cannon ones. And pretty much the defining unit in that game was the Furioso librarian. He was able to walk up with force and just kind of solo his entire unit, um, Nick's entire unit in Necron Wraiths with uh, strength 10 and force and, you know, the once per game ability to basically attack twice. Um, so the takeaways from that is that the dread formation is really cool. It makes a really nice anchor to the, uh, Sanguinary Guard formation, um, and kind of Lucius pods make that work. So those Forge World drop pods, if you guys are not familiar, they're the ones that allow you to um, to stay in the drop pod, and uh, you can fire out of them, you get shrouded, and then you can charge out of them the next turn, which is nice. Um, so, yeah, I basically held the Golden Host in reserve until turn three. It came down, did a lot of damage, um, and Nick had a pretty nice counterpunch with his Tri-Praetorians. He had a... Um, Judicator Battalion, uh, but basically I was able to survive that, rally up, and kind of sweep away the rest of his army. Um, didn't quite table him, but it was uh, pretty convincing. 
Wow, that's good. That's, that's really fun to hear, too. Especially, yeah. I know, since you are very much a Blood Angel dedicated player, and you've been looking for a way to make that Golden Host formation work, too. Yeah, yeah, I love Golden Host. Um, I actually was sort of figuring out other ways I could use Sanguinary Guard models, like uh, kind of converting them into uh, Raven Guard, Vanguard vets, maybe like magnetizing them. And I still may do that, um, but it was cool to be able to use something straight out of the Blood Angels book. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, I really think those Forge World pods are going to help make that possible. Um, and, you know, this is something that Brad and I had been talking about a little bit using that formation, but I also uh, I saw a post on Competitive 40K the other day where um, I think his name was Jeff. Uh, he had like this really, really nicely painted army, and I was like, man, you know, I would like to try that out, that that list. And so I sort of made my own version of it uh, with a couple of tweaks, and it was super fun. And even Nick was like having a blast the whole time. He was like, this is so cool. I'm losing to Dreadnoughts. You know, he was, <laughs> he was actually really excited about it. Um and yeah, like I said, I, I did also like his Necron list because it was very MSU. He had the Judicator Battalion. He had a Canoptech Harvest. Um, he had a couple of squads of Flayed Ones and um, a solid number of Tomb Blades. So it had mobility, but it had staying power and strength that Necron list brings. So I think that he'll be able to do some cool tweaks with that and make something good out of it, too. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds mm -hmm. like a fun list, too. Yeah, yeah. So I'll maybe get a chance to bring that one up a little later so um yeah i'm pretty much just kind of having fun with the game right now think of it as kind of like the off season not a lot of tournaments um we might have one locally in december i think um so i might try to get the sanguinary guard ready for that um because <laughs> if i can't go nick says he wants to bring my list which show <laughs> would be kind of awesome he's like oh i kind of want to play this i was like dude yeah you're if I can't go to the tournament, just take my models and uh, see how well you do with it. Because I think, um, you know, I, I didn't think about how good this is, but those Furiosa Librarian Dreadnoughts are, you know, I think they're four attacks base. They have two combat weapons that puts them up to five. They get six on the charge. They can uh, take the Blood Angel Primaris to throw uh, D3 more attacks on top of that. And then once per game, they can attack in the movement phase also. Um, so potentially you can run in there and throw down like 15 attacks. Uh, and you can have force up, and at strength ten, that's just nasty. Yeah. Also, does it quickening also give you D three to your initiative as well? It does. Yeah. You know that's actually really good against like wraith knights or anything too, because then you're swinging for them, doubling them out with force, and on average you're probably just wiping them off the map immediately. You're gonna have yeah, to get I've... both powers off, but you still. I think have a librarian furioso, like a level two librarian furioso, is like one seventy five. Lucius Pod brings them up to 225 because it's 50 for that. So for a you know 225 point investment, I you know if I'm the Eldar player, I don't want my Wraith Knight anywhere near that thing because right. it's a really favorable trade. Even if the, even if the Dreadnought gets stomped out, like it's probably taking the Wraith Knight down with it. Exactly. So um, I don't know. I, I may like in the future make some tweaks. I might even try to get two Furiosa Librarians in the list instead of just one. Um, and do something like that. I'll have to play around with it, but uh, I think it I think it has legs. I think it has some potential because it's good against a lot of the stuff in the meta. You know, armor thirteen is very resistant to strength six. Um, strength ten force weapons are no joke, and assault from deep strike is powerful. Yeah, very true. All right, so um, shall we get into blind counter? All right, so you want to go over the mission first, and then uh, we'll each talk about the list that we brought? Uh, sure thing. 
So for this blind counter segment here, uh, I randomly grabbed a mission. I basically rolled off between ITC, Nova, and Standard Book, and we ended up with ITC mission. So we're going to go over mission four. So it's going to be hammer and anvil deployment, and we're going to go ahead and have the scouring. So we're going to have three objectives, a one, two, and a three, and each of us is going to place a one-point objective in our deployment zone, one 30 inches away from our table edge, and number three is going to be in our opponent's deployment zone. So six whole objectives with a one-pointer, a two-pointer, and a three-pointer. Both of our deployment zones have a one and a three, and the middle ground has a two and a two. Right on. Yep. Okay, so um, I think I'll start off with my list first, and then um, after you talk about yours, I'll talk about how I'll place my objectives, because I think that that's uh, kind of important to think about. And so when you're listening at home, you know, you want to picture the board. Uh, we're going hammer and anvil, so we're going across the from short edge to short edge, um, if you just want to kind of visualize that. Um, our, our terrain setup, I think, would probably be sort of more like Nova, so we'd have a ruin in each uh, opposite corner. We'd have hills in the other opposite corners, and then in the center, we'd have two large line of sight blocking pieces of terrain with a couple of smaller ruins um, in like the center of each long edge. Um, and that kind of helps you picture what the battlefield actually looks like. Um, so the list that I'm going to bring this week is um, actually kind of revisiting stuff I don't haven't played as much lately. Uh, and so I decided to go with Necrons this time, um, since we haven't actually talked about that a whole lot. Mm. And uh, going with the Decurion Detachment, um, starting off with the Reclamation Legion, um, that's made up of, you know, the five-man squad of Immortals, um, the two ten-man squads of Warriors, uh, all stock. Then the Warlord, who has the Solar Staff, um, to give him the ability to basically make his unit effectively invisible to shooting for one turn. Um, then I've got three units of five Tomb Blades, um, all with three-plus armor and ignore cover. Um, and then outside the Reclamation Legion, I have some Auxiliaries. I have uh, two units of five Flayed Ones. Um, I have a Canoptech Harvest with, uh, I'm sorry, I have two Canoptech Harvests, which have four Wraiths each, three Scarabs, and a Spider each. Um, and finally, to top it all off, I have a, uh, Judicator Battalion with, um, two squads of five Praetorians and a Triarch Stalker. Oh, wow. That's a really different, interesting list. I like it a lot, though. Yeah, it's kind of building off what Nick was playing. Um, he was doing the Judicator and the Tomb Blades. I decided to split up the one Canoptech Harvest into two by four. Um, I have a few less Triarch Praetorians than he took last time around, but it's got some hitting power, it's got staying power, and uh, I was kind of investigating, you know, because Nick made the point at the beginning of the game. He says, you know, if you think about it in an ITC format, since you've got Sisters of Silence and stuff like that running around, Necrons don't rely on psychic powers at all. And so it's almost like they are a more reliable version of, of demons. Um, and I thought that that was kind of interesting the way he was approaching building this list. So mm -hmm. I kind of uh, put a little bit of my own spin on it, but it's heavily influenced by what I played against with my Blood Angels. Um, and as far as the you know formations go, I think you guys are probably familiar with you know how the Canoptech Harvest works, the Wraiths Kit reanimation protocols. Um, and then the uh, Judicator Battalion gives them that target designated rule, which... Um, basically allows the stalker to mark a unit um, and then any units from the formation get rerolls to hit wound and armor pen against that unit with their, um, you know, with their weapons. So I think that's pretty cool and it'd be interesting to try that out. Yeah. Very cool. 
All right. Um, I'm going to go over my list in that case. Um, you know, it's actually a very funny thing that you mentioned, uh, the Sisters of Silence against Necrons, because I actually took a the, their formation. Oh, that's so, funny. <laughs> yeah. So I have the Null Maiden Task Force. Um, I took three units of five sisters. They are just all with their AP2 um, swords. So, I mean, having at, initi at initiative, um, you know, three to four attacks each, uh, AP2 is not too bad. Um, so three units of the sisters. Um, and then I took a Eldar Cad. I have an Altark on a jet bike with a Banshee Mask and a Lance. So just your general utility Altark. Yep. Three units of um, three scatter laser jet bikes, standard Eldar. Uh, two units of five-man warp spiders with Exarchs. A single uh, support battery. It's just going to be your Shadow Weaver. So 48-inch small blast model filament, strength 6, AP6. So wound against initiative and rending. Uh, two individual warp hunters with move through cover. And finally, I have a formation from Dark Eldar Covens. I took the Corpse Thief Claw, so that's five Talos, all with uh, Fleshbane, and it's sixes to wound or insta-death. And that's my nice. 1850 list. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. I guess to build off the idea that Sisters of Silence are the new kids in the block, they definitely have much more board presence compared to Kalexis, whereas a Kalexis is a little bit easier to deliver. Um, via infiltrate, outflank, what have you, the opponent really only has to worry about a single model with a 12-inch bubble around it. Right. Having these Sisters of Silence, I can easily either reserve two squads, all of them, maybe just one, and then run up one or two squads along the board edge, have the opponent worry about 10 models trying to control board presence in the middle, and then even if they go try to get close to me and avoid the main sisters, I might have one or two hanging out in reserve that can just pop on late game instead and have a backfield um, no psychic bubble. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and then on top of that, the Corpse Thief Claw is a really strong formation if it gets to you, and it's also a strong deterrent. The things that it does care about, however, are going to be Death Stars and Force Weapons, which having multiple Sisters of Silence squads should mitigate its major downsides. True. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Nice little uh, kind of anticipating the counters to your own list. It's yep. cool. So then, I think it's kind of interesting here because we both have a couple of, uh, you know, durable units that we can tie each other up with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we sort of both are sort of going for a similar strategy of like blunting the combat effectiveness of things like Death Stars while still being able to, uh, you know, Hit with you in second hurt. Absolutely. You definitely went more with the MSU approach. Um, mm -hmm. I think you also have a stronger combat than I do. So I really yeah, I think so. My big thing is going to be my corpse thief will hurt you and can definitely slow your advance. But you have so many comp dedicated combat units that I'm not going to be able to chew through all of them, especially with your reanimation. And my corpse thief is going to tie up maybe two three if I'm lucky and get a crazy big multi-charge off. So right. if you get to me, I think you have the advantage here. But mm -hmm. the problem here also is hammer and anvil. So I'm going to be able to have at least maybe a turn or two of Warp Hunter shooting at you before you actually get to me. Right, and that's a really good point. Um, because going into this, I noticed similar things, and I was sort of thinking about, like, okay, I have 
strong board presence and I can really just sort of walk up in the middle of the board and start controlling things. Uh, the problem is that I don't have as much board to work with there and you have a lot more distance to you know, move around and kind of get behind me and mm -hmm. use your mobility. So um, my essential strategy here would be not to really reserve all that much, um, if anything, and just kind of let my army stand and, you know, kind of go by attrition because I think it does that very well. Um, and if I have to trade units as favorably as I can, um, you know, kind of understand that some things are going to have to be sacrificed, but they are Necron units. So even if it is a sure thing that my, my opponent's going to kill them, um, it's going to take him a lot of energy and dedication to do so. Uh, and so in the meantime, I can use my faster units to capture Maelstrom objectives, uh, kill off weaker units, and uh, just kind of grind down, you know, the opponent. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, really, for me, the way that I'm going to go about, at least uh, pre-game here, is who is going to get first turn, because that will determine everything that I'm going to do with my list. Right. Uh, I think I'm, we can both agree that your strategy is to go for second turn, right? More or less, yeah. But I mean, I if I do get first turn, I'm able to be much more aggressive against you. True. Whereas second turn, having the Altarc, that affects all of my units, just because of the way that's worded. I can also have a very, very strong reserve game, having potentially uh, things coming in a four-up, and if I roll the Warlord trait, re-rollable. Right, right. Yeah, so sometimes um, having a couple of different plans in mind when you step up to the table can be really helpful because of how much pregame rolls can affect your plan. Um, the nice thing is that neither of us really have to think that much about psychic powers. Um, so our game plan can be a, lot, a little more concrete than a list that's relying more on seeing what powers you get. Um, so we kind of both have that in our favor a little bit. Very, very, very true. All right, Jim. So I think at this point, let's go ahead and talk about some of the pre-game stuff that we do have to do for the ITC mission. Right. So adjust and define terrain with your opponent. We pretty much went over that in uh, what you talked about, the board table setup. The thing that I would mention, too, is that remember in ITC, any barrage weapons auto hit the top floor of any ruins. Based on our table setup, I'd say that the ruins in our deployment zone, as well as maybe one or both of them in the center of the table, are going to have overhangs. So you will have spaces to put down your wraiths or your praetorians or things basically hiding underneath the ruins within striking distance of me while also being immune to my warfighters. Right. And that's going to be a really powerful uh thing for me because you know they are slightly less powerful d weapons so uh but they do still ignore the reanimation protocols um so they will be really effective at killing wraiths um especially you know but the wraiths having their invulnerable save will help so that's not going to get ignored mm -hmm. um and the fact that i'm split up into smaller units of wraiths you know two smaller units instead of one bigger one i think is a a nice little bonus for me so i can hide them a little easier and um if i lose one i still have another one Right, and I guess this is also one of the big things that we're t we always talk about is that a good player is always going to pre-measure everything. Mm -hmm. Before, like at the beginning of my turn, before I even move anything, I'm going to pre-measure the targets that I want to shoot at, things I might want to assault later in the phase, and then also my own units compared to your units, basically for the return fire, return phase. And I think one of the things that's criminally underrated is that your rates are on 40 millimeter bases. Yep. So you are going to make sure that no matter what, they are going to be two inch spread for every single wraith. 
That way, from the, at least the initial blast of my warp motor, if I hit, I'm going to hit at most two rates. That's with a favorable scatter to be perfectly in between two rates. If I roll a direct hit, I'm only going to hit one wraith. Yep. So then that right there is going to mitigate as with a much return fire, and then you're going to have your three up in vol to even worsen me down too. Exactly. Um, so I, I think that in this particular mission, um, as far as pregame rolls go, I think that my warlord trade I'm going to go for the uh, strategic because if I get conqueror of cities, I you're in big trouble because um, I can get some really nice cover saves from those ruins in addition to the fact that I can hide from warp hunters. And now I'm not really afraid of any of your firepower. Right, right. Uh, the only thing that you might still have to be worried about would be my warp hunters. They do have that one uh, flamer. However, True. it is not torrent. And I have to be extremely close to you. And then again, it also, since it is a craft rolled version of the warp hunter, I am minus one to all my D table results. So it needs threes to actually wound you. And there's a chance that I, you know, just shit the bed and roll ones and twos everywhere. And then I'm just going to get assaulted and the warp hunter dies. It's pretty much is a last desperate situation flamer template. It's not something to be used very aggressively. Right. Exactly. So. Um, so how about your objective placement? Like, I, I, you know what we should do? I think we should actually, like, you know, roll the dice and see who would have actually gotten to place first and who would have gotten to deploy first and stuff like that. Absolutely. Because I think now we've gotten past all the hypothetical stuff that we could reasonably assume. Okay, for the objective roll, I rolled a six. Okay. Uh, I'm using my pink Nova dice, which if anyone's ever played against me, everyone knows that these roll stupidly good sometimes. Yes. So um, I got three. So you can choose to place objectives first or you can force me to place first. So I think what I want to do here, since I know that my plan is pretty concrete, um, I'm just going to go ahead and place first. Um, and because what I want to do, since my army is you know very durable, very, very resilient, and just kind of good at attrition and being tough, um, I'm going to place my first objective as close to the middle of the board as I can. Um, so I'm not going to put it very deep in my deployment zone because I know that Eldar have a lot of options for outflanking and for um, deep striking and just kind of harassing the edges. So I'm going to try to keep the game in the middle, which means my first objective is going to go... Because the first objective has to be in your own deployment zone, correct? Correct. Okay, so I'm going to kind of put it pretty central. Um, doesn't even really have to be in your terrain. I'm going to put it kind of close by so I can kind of maybe stick a warrior squad on it or something. Um, but it's going to be pretty far up. Okay. Um... As a counterpoint to that, I will go ahead and put mine about 12 inches away from the 30-inch line, so that way I'll have at least a closer knit unit here. Um, it'll be probably onto one side of my deployment zone as well. I don't want to dedicate things to the middle, and I want, I want those flanks, as you mentioned yep. earlier. And then my second one, I'm basically just going to sort of um, mirror the position of the first one, keep it, you know, 12 inches away, and just kind of, um, you know, again, go for a central position. Okay. Uh, my second one, I'm going to try to find a spot that is going to be 12 inches away from your second objective number two, and yeah. I will put mine somewhat close to my first objective. Basically, I want to try to have, like, almost a close line so that my corpse thief can kind of threaten both objectives at the same time, if need be. Makes sense. Um, and then my third one is the one that I have to put. Um, that one has to go outside my deployment zone, but within my table half. Uh, no, um, in my deployment zone, actually. That's right, that's right. The second one was the one I was just talking about. Um, okay, I can picture it now. 
So I would probably put my third one, um, you know, again, basically a mirror of what I did in my deployment zone of my first one, um, just in yours. Uh, my third one, I'm going to mirror my own initial place as well somewhat too. I'm going to put it onto one of the flanks and pretty much on your 24-inch line, as close up, closest to me as possible, outside of terrain, because remember, this is the three-point objective, and I don't want you to have an easy way to get it without me being able to threaten it too. Okay. So basically from here, now uh, the easy part is just playing the game, you know, um, moving your units, rolling the dice, figuring out what to put where, and... Um, thinking a couple of turns ahead, you know, this is where I like to think about, you know, what is my win condition? Um, so again, I know that, um, oh, you know what? We should roll and see who would have gotten first turn. Oh yeah. Oh, actually let's Before roll one of the traits quick. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. Because that will make a difference. So I'd go in strategic as well with a reroll. If I need it. Um, I got a six, so I got a three. Um, I'm going to get a one here actually on the reroll. So I will have Hunger of Cities. Sorry, I'm going to quick, quick break my headphones. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I got a, re I got a six, and I've rerolled it into a one, so I will have stealth and move to cover ruins, which is nice. actually pretty good for me, considering I have a lot of jet bikes. Mm -hmm. um, I picked up three, which I believe is the infiltrate, or... Yeah, I think it's the infiltrate one, correct? Yeah, uh, your warlord and three units of infiltrate, which is also... So that's pretty nice. Really good against um, me, yeah. Yeah, what I think I may do is um, take my... Warlord and stick him with a squad of wraiths, and then infiltrate that and the rest of the Canoptech harvest. Get it behind some terrain, and just kind of get a really nice middle board position with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that you know, I you know, we're be basically able to see like, you know, what's going to need to happen in order for us each to win. You're going to need to cause enough damage with your warp hunters to cripple the elements of my army that are you know, robust and kind of in your face. Um, I need to counter the harassment of things like jet bikes i'm sorry of things like um war spiders and uh and jet bikes with the elements of my army that can actually catch them so tomb blades um the triarch praetorians and things like that um and it'll come down a little bit to the dice and how we make those individual decisions and obviously i think personally um it's difficult to kind of abstract that any further <laughs> um you know outside of literally just playing the game but um, hopefully you guys can kind of picture that in your mind, because I'm getting a pretty good picture in my head of, of how this game might play out. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. So going from here, you know, there's a couple of cool takeaways for, for you as a player, um, you know, coming into your games and, and kind of being able to do a shorthand version of this in your head. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. Figure out what your win condition is. Um, read your opponent's list and quickly identify what it can do. And also what it can't do well. Um, that's something that we didn't really get a chance to talk about much last time. Is um, We both noticed, for example, that we don't have any psychic powers. So neither of us has to worry about the psychic phase. We can already count that part of the game out. Um, and those little you know, judgments of what's going on can really help you figure out where your strategy should be going um, forward from there. Very good points, yeah. Yeah. Um... The other thing I want to bring up here, too, is that, especially for newer tournament players, is never be afraid to really ask your opponent, okay, well, what does this unit in your list actually do? Because while Jim and I have played against these armies many a times, and we can basically say, oh, you got a Corpse of Flaw, I got Sisters of Silence, uh, Jim's got Trick Praetorians, I'm like, okay, yeah. Both of us have a working familiarity with both codexes. 
So we're able to just be like, say one thing, know what it does essentially. But if, for example, you have no idea what the hell Triarch Praetorians do, don't be afraid to ask your opponent, hey, what does this unit do? Are they fast? Are they good in combat? So on and so forth. Right, because they could even just give you a quick shorthand of like, well, Triarch Praetorians have a short-range shooting attack that you know is AP2. Um, they're solid in combat and uh, are fairly durable. Um, and they have a special ability that lets them mark units. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know about them. Right, right. Um, I also noticed that I personally have had a lot of experience just explaining armies to my opponents, especially since as of late, because not many people have played against Harlequins, and I find myself <laughs> giving a quick rundown of my army at the beginning of the game, and I also remind my opponents of many of the main special rules. So, like, turn two, I can run in charge. That's the one thing I always make sure they know, so that I'm not catching them off guard again, you know, with a, aha, gotcha moment. Mm -hmm. Because no one wants to have those kind of games where it's like you felt that your opponent cheated you or withheld information and then you lost not because you were outplayed or because your opponent played better than you but really because you had no idea what the army did right right and i think a lot of people have felt that way going against things like you know the newer armies like war convocation and gene Stewart cults and stuff like that because it does take a couple of games against them to really understand how to play against those sort of tactics that they have um and yeah, it can be really frustrating to go up to a table and be like, I actually have no idea how this works. So yeah, don't be ashamed to tell your opponent, like, hey, listen, I haven't gotten any practice against this. If you, you know, just kind of bear with me and tell me a little bit about what your stuff does, that would really help me out. And, you know, nine times out of 10, your opponent's going to be more than happy to explain it to you. Um, and, you know, if they're not, they ask to see their rules, you know, <laughs> because you're entitled to access to all that stuff. Exactly. Cool. Um, so, cool. <laughs> so I guess at this point, uh, let's roll off and see who goes first, and we can do a quick talk through them of uh, how the game will go from then. Yeah, sure. Um, I got a five. Uh, I also got five. Okay. Roll again. I got a, I got a four this time. All right. Would you care to go first or second here, Jim? So, um, does your army have any bonus to seize right now? I have no bonus to seize whatsoever. So I think that given I have that. Uh, that advantage with the infiltrate, um, and given the fact that I want to get my uh, Canoptech harvest rules going up soon, like I want to grant reanimation protocols to my rates fast and uh, kind of establish that strong board presence, um, I'm thinking I'm actually going to do something I don't normally do, and I think I'm going to elect to go first. Okay. That's um, that's an interesting stance because I feel like you could easily, easily either go first or second and be in a good position. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, this is pretty much my thoughts talking about the game, how it's going to go. Is um, Going first allows you to have two Wraith units as well as probably a Spider or something else infiltrate up, get underneath a Ruin, and have the first turn protection against the Warp Hunters, as well as having solid board presence right away. Yeah. Um, it allows you to get to me closer, get, get to me faster, have less turns of my shooting, and gives you an early board control. The only downside to that is that now you are giving me second turn in a mission that does favor um, me going second because, you know, the scouring, it's endgame objectives. The right. Maelstrom chart, which I guess we forgot to mention quickly. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you roll, 2D, you roll 3d6 and take two of the results. On a 1, 2, 3, you're going to hold either objective 1, either 2, or either 3. 
and then a four, five, six, it's just straight up kill the enemy unit. In terms of the end game objectives, I will have the advantage going second, provided that my jet bikes and many of my fast scoring units are able to survive. For the Maelstrom, normally I would say that you would have the advantage here because you are so resilient, you're able to put things down on objectives and probably have an easy time killing some of my units. I actually gonna push it back towards either of us only because my Corpse Thief Claw, when it does gain the combat, every unit it kills is going to get me a Maelstrom point. Right. Um, it is important to note, though, that for this ITC season as well, you can only score a maximum of three Maelstrom points in a turn. So it doesn't matter if I kill four units with my Corpse Thief, I'm only getting three. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, and so my thought process with choosing first turn is you know i i have to sort of understand that cameron wants to go second and that's good for his plan but i'm i'm betting that me going first is better for me than him going second is good for him and that is sort of a calculated risk you know mm -hmm. um and i could be wrong you know that i would have to see how the game plays out i've never played this this exact game before so um but i'm going to sort of make that bet and see how it plays out for me um, and, and it definitely is a solid bet too, because well, okay, what would you what would you actually deploy on the board at this point now? Um, at this point, so I would be throwing down, you know, I keep my like we said before, I do that infiltrate tactic. Um, I would deploy the other Canoptic Harvest pretty close up in some ruins that I can. Um, I'd keep a couple warrior squads back a ways, um, and I would probably hold my uh, tomb blades sort of out of line of sight. Uh, but on the board, so that they can quickly react to things like Deep Strikers and that sort of thing. Um, and I may also have my uh, my Trier Praetorians doing a similar thing, like kind of hiding a bit, because I want them as like counter assault units and count being there to counter fast units. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm putting up my wraiths as like a screen, and then the rest of my army is sort of castled up around the center. Okay. Um, I also I would assume that you have at least like one Praetorian and one Tomb Blade probably on the line as well, just to not only be able to react to any deep strike threats in your deployment, but also have them put forward pressure along with the wraiths. That's the idea, yeah. So they're okay. they're close enough to support, but they're far enough back that if I need to bounce back and play something off an objective, they can do that very well. Okay. Yeah. So with that in mind, then my deployment, I'm probably going to drop down my Shadow Weaver in mm -hmm. my back ruin as far away as pop as humanly possible um it is a really hard thing to remove off the table once it's on there and it's a good way to basically you have no major long range threats so I most have, of my shooting is 24 inches or less right so i'm reliably able to put that down and knock a table turn one um, i am going to go reserve heavy so i will put down that one unit and i will actually give up a single sister unit and I will deploy them on the line as well too. I'm basically giving you a free kill point. Um, however, I'm also trying to mitigate how close you can get with your infiltrates. Right, right. That, that prevents me from getting too far up. Yeah. Um, I put it actually on the side closer to my um, support weapon and kind of strung yeah. out in a line from my top of my deployment zone towards the back of my deployment zone because you're 
it was only one unit you were going to be able to infiltrate behind them too. Yeah. So at least having one near the top and maybe actually we'll throw a second one out there in the middle to try to deny how close you can get to me makes sense okay um cool so there you have it that's kind of you know how our thought process would go you know into the beginning of the game and how we would sort of start things off and uh like i said it would come down to how we each react to each other's decisions and i know personally i'm i would start losing track of things if we tried to take this any further um (laughs) yeah but i do think it's kind of an interesting exercise an interesting idea um for you know if you don't really have a chance to play against something or you you know nobody's around to play a game but they can still talk you know try it out try to see how it would go and you know uh it could kind of help you out so um it would also be kind of cool if you're listening and you would like to see more of the blind counter segment um you could send in your lists and then uh cameron and i could select one of them at random you know from our listeners and then we wouldn't know exactly which listener list we were playing uh, just kind of see how we would go forward from there. Um, it is also interesting to see, like, when you design a list, how somebody else would play it. Um, because I think we all have different opinions on, like, how we'd actually approach the game going forward. Um, so if you'd like to see, you know, you have a list idea and you know how to play it and <laughs> you want to see if Cameron and I made a horrible mistake and how we'd actually use it, then you know, we, we'd be interested to hear from you guys. Yeah. Um, on that note, we are going to have a Facebook page up in the near future, so that will be a place to give us feedback, send a list, um, give us any ideas you might want to hear from Material Madness or for a regular podcast segment as well, too. So uh, it'll probably be Facebook.com. Just find Roll to Wound. That's Roll to, like, number, wound. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Um, I guess, Jim, uh, to give a quick final wrap-up, um, given everything that we just talked through, how would you predict this game to go? Like, percentage-wise, what's the chance of you winning versus me winning here? I don't know. I feel really good about this one. I think that I probably have, like, a 60 to 70% chance of winning. Um, I think just because the list matchup is a little more favorable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that said, the mission kind of knocks that down a little bit. And I am gambling a little bit by sort of... Um, like stressing my advantages in the early game and, and kind of uh, going for the more aggressive play. Um, so that could go really well for me or that could go very poorly. Um, and it's, it's hard to say. So that's why I wouldn't say like, Oh, I've, I've got this one in the bag. Like it's hundred percent, but I do feel favored. Um, and I feel confident about my chances in this one. Okay. I, I actually agree with you on this one. Um, I put it a 60, 40 uh, split towards you it really is that you getting to infiltrate dictates the course of the entire game. Um, yeah. I'm going to be able to reserve things and try to keep things off with my Altark. Um, if there is a turn where your rates either have a low run or aren't able to make it into cover, I can bring the Warp Hunters on and try to blast them away. But it really is an uphill battle for me trying to get to you. And then on average, the game is going to go on to turn six because it's only on a one or two. And I, given an unlimited time format, I'd be remiss of me to basically throw all of my jetpacks onto things turn five and pray the game ends, because that's just a losing strategy. Um, yeah, especially because I have enough units that are fast enough that once those units are there, I can very easily come in and just blow them right off. Right. Um, I guess the big thing, too, is also what side does the corpse thief outflank on? 
because mm-hmm. in hammer and anvil, I'd throw a bunch of outflank in a heartbeat. And then yeah. you have a good defense against it, having that uh, main objective in the center of your board. But remember, I did put my three-point objective in your zone on one side. So if I come onto the favorable side with a 66% chance, I can threaten that and then make you have to deal with my very resilient, almost Death Star type unit too. So, yeah, uh, which which I don't want to be throwing um, like bait into, and I don't want to be throwing sacrificial units too because then I'm feeding you points. Right, and then that will swing me the maelstrom too. So, however, mm-hmm. you have the better staying power and you have the ability to take out my warp hunters, which is not something that everyone does. So yeah. if you kill the warp hunters, I think you pretty much win the game. If you think don't so. and you can't really reliably feed and tie up my corpse thief, I think I have it. So Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um it would come down to the actual playing of the game and that's that's why we play. You know, that's why uh you can't just see two army lists and go, that's gonna win hundred percent of the time, you know. But um the whole point of this, like we were saying before, is to figure out what your strategy is in the game and um, figure out how you're going to go about, you know, achieving those win conditions and um, approaching the matchup because that's what actually matters in this game. Uh, you know, just as much as the list building does, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess Nick and I have also talked about this, and Brad too. Brad was the one that actually brought up this entire idea, and that a game of 40k is based around three different parts. 33% of it is going to be your actual list that you take. 33% yeah. of it will be your tactics within the game. And 33% is going to be luck. I mean, it is a dice game. Things are going to happen. You're going to have big swings. Hopefully statistically within average, though. Right, It's kind of like risk management is, right. is what the game's all about. And the big thing here is that luck is never going to change. So 33% of all your games is going to be dice dependent. That's not going to happen. Between your list and between your tactics, that's where you can swing the game heavily into your favor. Either by having a stronger list and basically going from a 33% to, say, like a 50%. Or by having better tactics than your opponent and bringing that from like a 33% up to like a 50% as well, too. Yeah. So really either outplaying your opponent or having a stronger list will basically mitigate the luck factor and have you more favorably suited against your opponent. Yep, yeah, you got that right. Um, so yeah, like we always say, uh, identify what you can do, identify what your opponent can do. What are your win conditions? You know, develop a plan, but be flexible enough to adapt it. Cool. Well, we certainly hope that, uh, you listeners enjoyed this, this thought, this blind list that we had going on. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Jim, or anything else you want to discuss quickly? Uh, yeah, just blind counter is kind of fun. I'd like to do it again. So hopefully we get some list submissions. Um, I'll draft up some more ideas and see what I can come up with, but, uh, it's, it's kind of nice to play like a little more detailed version of theory hammer. Absolutely. And we certainly hope that listeners actually learn something from this and basically get a little bit insight into our own brains and how we think about the game. Cause it definitely is a, it is a useful skill to have, especially oh, yeah. if you want to go ahead and try to improve your game or basically look at the game state and see what's going on kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, see you guys next time on mid table madness. Cool. Thanks for listening.